gospel lesson this morning is found in Matthew chapter 6, reading verses 25 through 34. Therefore, I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, by being anxious, can add a single hour to his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow, they neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore, do not be anxious, saying, what shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble." This is the word of the Lord. It is my privilege today to introduce to you one of my longest friends in ministry. Mike Malone is currently serving as pastor, one of the associate pastors at Independent Presbyterian Church in Memphis, Tennessee. But I came to know Mike as a young seminary student full of... um, what I thought was um, wisdom and, uh, and a lot of pride. And Mike was the gentle and kind pastor who walked with many of us in those early days. And he directed us to good things and he's always continued to do so. And so it's my normal uh, opportunity to see him once a year at our denomination's general assembly. And so it was a privilege when the elders gave me permission to invite him to come and preach to you today. And uh, it is my privilege to give you my friend, Mike Malone. Well, I'm happy to be here. Uh, glad to be back at Christ Church. It's been, uh, I think, six years since uh, I last had the opportunity to be with you. Chuck very graciously invited me to preach uh, at his installation service. And um, it's been uh, great at a distance to interact with Chuck some and kind of follow what God is doing here at Christ Church. It's very encouraging and I trust that you're encouraged uh, as well. I want you to look with me this morning at Psalm 121. Uh, This is a Psalm, it seems to me, that captures um, quite nicely the life of a pilgrim. Um, And that's what we are isn't it? We are, we are pilgrims. Uh, and as we look at this psalm, I'm, I'm going to encourage you to have three words in mind. They, they serve as pegs, if you will, that you can kind of hang this psalm on. Um, and they are the words help, helper, and hope. Help, helper, and hope. I hope that'll help you to reflect upon this psalm with me, Uh, but in order for us to to see what God would have for us in his word, we need his help. So let me have you pray with me. 
Father, thank you that you've not left us alone. You've not left us in the dark, but you've revealed yourself. Uh, You've done it in your word. You've done it consummately in the Lord Jesus Christ, the word of God incarnate to which this, your written word, constantly alludes and makes reference. And it is in this word that his coming, his living, his dying, his being raised, his ascending, his ruling and reigning as the King of kings and Lord of lords. Lord, it's all here in this, your word. And as we come to this portion of it, we do acknowledge that we need your help. Grant us your spirit that we might behold wonderful things in this portion of your word. We pray in Jesus' name, amen. Peter Kreeft is um, a name some of you may recognize. He he is an author, he is also a teacher. He teaches philosophy at Boston College. And um, I think early in his teaching career, and perhaps he still does this, in addition to teaching philosophy, he taught a Bible survey class to first year students, to freshman students. He's written a short commentary on the books of Job and Song of Songs and Ecclesiastes. And in his prefatory remarks to the book of Ecclesiastes, he tells you that when he first began his teaching career and began teaching this Bible survey class, he would start at the beginning. He'd start at Genesis 1-1 and then make his way through the book. And by the end of the semester, he'd end up at the end of the Revelation, the 22nd chapter and the last verse. But as he got into his teaching career, he realized that incoming freshman students didn't share the assumptions, some of the basic assumptions that he had in mind as as he taught. Assumptions about God and the nature of God and assumptions about mankind and and our place in the world and and God's purpose for his world. They didn't didn't know the basic storyline of the Bible and so in a sense he had to go back to before in the beginning and ask some fundamental questions of these students and get them to wrestle with some fundamental questions. And in order to do that, he used the book of Ecclesiastes. So he started his Bible survey class there. And he used that book because that book essentially, if you distill it down, that book essentially offers us two ways of looking at life. Life with God in it, life under God, and life with God out of it, not having a place in it, life under the sun. Two ways of looking at the world, two worldviews, if you will. And, and then, then that, that basic two view of the world approach to life in the book of Ecclesiastes challenges us to ask this question and answer this question, which way of looking at the world makes the most sense? Does looking at life without God in your worldview make sense? Or does looking at life with God 
in your worldview make the most sense? What best explains what we see, what we experience? What best explains who we are as people, as human beings? And what view of the world really gives people hope? A deep, satisfying, real hope. There are lots of reasons, I suppose, or lots of ways in which you could answer the question, why am I a Christian? One of those answers to my way of thinking is that Christianity, the view of the world that you find in the Bible just makes the most sense. And it's the view of the world that offers a deep and real and lasting hope. And I'd suggest to you that you find echoes in this psalm of that biblical view of the world, a view that makes sense of the world, and a view of the world in which real hope is to be found. You begin in these first two verses of Psalm 121. I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord. Why? Why does he lift his eyes to the hills? Why does this pilgrim raise his eyes up? Why does he look up and out? Well, presumably, it's either because he himself is in a bit of trouble, or he's simply mindful of the fact that trouble is lurking around every corner. And he recognizes that he needs help. We don't know his circumstances exactly. This writer um, pens this one Psalm, Psalm 121, but Psalm 121 has been collected into a collection of 15 psalms. You'll see the heading is that this is one of the songs of ascent. Psalm 120 and all the way through 134 make up a kind of a book within the book. Actually, it's a book within a book within a book. The book of Psalms is actually five books, and then this is a collection of psalms within that fifth book of Psalms. And there's good reason to believe that these 15 songs were sung by Jewish pilgrims as they made their way to the annual feasts that would be held in Jerusalem as they came around every year. They would sing these songs on their way up to Jerusalem for Passover, for first fruits, for booths. And what is fascinating about this, if you read all 15 of them, is that there is a movement in these psalms, beginning with Psalm 120, which is a psalm in which the psalmist finds himself really and personally in distress, in a significant environment of discomfort. In my distress, I called to the Lord and he answered me. Deliver me, O Lord, from lying lips, from a, from a deceitful tongue. Woe to me that I, that I sojourn in Meshech, that I dwell among the tents of Kedar, two places very distant from Jerusalem, but to which the Jews had been driven when God took them out of their homeland and dispersed them across what is now the Middle East. 
So he's in distress in, in number 120. And then in number 121, you get this picture of a sojourner, one who lifts his eyes up to the hills, not just any hills, but to the hills of Jerusalem, the city of God, where God's presence is pleased to dwell. And then in 122, Psalm 122, you find him at the gates of the city. And it all culminates in Psalm 134, which is a celebration of the joy that one finds when one finally comes to the sanctuary, one finally gets to the place of God's presence where God blesses his people. But until they get there, until they get there, there's trouble. There's danger, there's uncertainty, captured in phrases like feet slipping, or being confronted with evil, or the heat of the day, or the cold of the night, making an assault on a person. There's danger everywhere. That's your world, isn't it? That's the world you live in, isn't it? It's a world filled with trouble. It's a world filled with danger. It's a world filled with uncertainty. You don't know what tomorrow will bring. You have absolutely no assurance, final assurance about anything with respect to tomorrow. In a room this size with this many people, there are stories, stories of loss, stories of grief, stories of sadness, everything from getting a B plus on a report card when you thought you were gonna get an A, to facing a diagnosis of cancer. Everything from losing a boyfriend or a girlfriend or not having a boyfriend or a girlfriend to losing a spouse or not ever having a spouse. One of my all time favorite books is a book by Cornelius Plantinga. And the title of the book is Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Not the Way It's Supposed to Be. Plantinga in that book, in about 250 pages, describes all of the ways in which sin robs life of its beauty, its loveliness, it's glory, it's shalom. Deep in our bones, we know, don't we? Certainly in our experience, but deep in our bones, we know both that this is not the way things are supposed to be. And deep in our bones, we know that there has to be something better. We know that we're designed for more. And the Bible agrees with what you know to be true deep in your bones. And the Bible has an explanation, both for the fact that you abhor the pain and the struggle and the suffering that you encounter in life, and this longing, this insatiable appetite for the more that you know you are made for. The Bible screams loudly that what you're sensing is accurate. And it explains to you why both of those things are there. Genesis 1 and 2 tell you the story of creation. I wish we could talk about it for an hour. How an infinite, personal, 
love-lavishing God created a world characterized by shalom, by this pervasive sense of peace and well-being and harmony and delightful intricacy and majesty and tenderness and all of the rest. And how God had created a man and a woman in his image to bear his likeness with remarkable creative capacities to care for that world, to love that world, to enjoy all of the blessedness of that world. But then goes on to tell us that something went tragically wrong. The man and the woman rebelled. They cast off this gracious, love-lavishing rule of God. They cut themselves off from the source of life. What happens when you cut yourself off from the source of life? Death. Death is what happens. And death is what began to characterize all of human existence. Every relationship that God had created good and delightful, glorifying to him, mutually beneficial to the man, to the woman, to their progeny, even to the creation that they would tend and care for. All of those relationships fractured, broken. The psalmist knows that. Don't be, don't be fooled by what he says in verse three, he will not let your foot be moved. Or verse seven, the Lord will keep you from all evil. He's not naive about the realities, the harsh realities of life in this world. The question he wants to ask is, what do you do in the face of that? Where do you go? To whom will you look? Well, he looks to the helper. He looks in the midst of, of life's uncertainties and, and horrible imperfections and flawedness as a pilgrim on his way to the presence of God, confronted by the specter of trouble. Where does he look? He looks to the helper. My help comes from the Lord this one who has made the heavens and the earth. Five times in this text, the word Lord appears. Four more times, the personal pronoun he appears. Nine times in this text, the God of all creation, the Lord of heaven and earth is referenced. It makes him the central character in this psalm. And it's interesting if you look at the text, and you may know this, but let me just remind you of the significance of it. If you look at that word Lord in the text, you'll notice that it's all capitalized. Every letter is in capital letters. That's because that particular word is the personal name of God. You will see the word Lord rendered capital L lowercase o-r-n-d. That translates the word Adonai, which has to do with God's power as a master or as a ruler, his lordship over what he has made. But this word that appears five times and is actually referenced nine times is the personal name of God, the name that God gave to Moses when he appeared to him in Exodus 3 at the burning bush. 
It's the name that is translated, I am who I am. I will be what I will be. It's, it's God's self-description as the eternal, self-existing, uncreated source of everything that exists. The one who is the creator of the heavens and the earth. The one who because, as our confession puts it, because he is infinite, eternal, and unchanging in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth, because he is that big and that forever, he is big enough to explain what exists to account for everything that exists, though he himself is uncreated. The eternally self-existing, infinite God who upholds all things. I remember as a kid, I had a record album. And on the front of the record album was Bill Cosby. And he was, he was kind of sitting on this homemade go-kart kind of a thing. And he was all akimbo, you know, his arms and legs, and he's barely holding on, clearly portraying going down a hill and being out of control. And the title of the album, some of you who are ancient like me, you may remember seeing this album. The title of the album was, Why Is There Air? Now that's fascinating, isn't it? Here's a comedian making it right. Why is there air? Well, it's actually a very good question. You know how comedians, can be some of the most insightful philosophers you'll encounter? It's a good question. Why is there air? And it leads to the other question, why is there anything at all? Why is there something rather than nothing? The Bible gives us an answer. It tells us that this infinite, eternal, and unchanging God stands behind everything that exists. And he is the one who is the keeper of this psalmist. He keeps him. He watches over him. He's not only the infinite and eternal God, he's the covenant-making God, the God who makes promises and who keeps his promises and because he is both powerful and good. He is not one or the other. He is both powerful and good. And because he is both powerful and good, he is able to be your keeper. That word keep or keeper or keeps, it appears six times in the text. I guess it's a pretty important word if it shows up that many times. And it means to watch over, to, to be a watchman, to, to keep in the sense that life is preserved. It's this one, this eternal God, who is your covenant-making, covenant-keeping, promise-making, promise-keeping God. He is your keeper. And woven into this, this, this character of who God is, is the fact that God knows you personally. The, the, the second person pronouns in Psalm 121, you and your, are all singular pronouns. We, we have one word for the singular you and the plural you. We, we mix that, us, that up a little bit in Memphis where we, we've created this other word, y'all, which helps, sort of. You know, because then there's, there's you, and there's y'all, and then there's all y'all. Singular, and a couple, and then a whole bunch. 
Well, in the Hebrew, the personal pronoun that is singular can be distinguished from the plural because they're two different words. And here they're personal. The Lord is your keeper, your keeper, and he can keep you because he knows you. He knows you personally. That's a feature of what it means for him to be God. These omnis that we, that we refer to, that he is omnipotent, that he possesses all power, that he, that he is omnipresent, that the totality of his being is present in every point of space. It's not that his foot is over here and his arm is over there and his head is someplace else. The totality of who he is is present everywhere. And then there is this omniscience that he knows all things. I stumbled across a couple of paragraphs in Charles Hodge's Systematic Theology a number of years ago that really helped me with this. Two little paragraphs in which Hodge suggests that God's knowledge works like this. This is my poor, imperfect paraphrase of Charles Hodge. God's knowledge means that he knows all particular things particularly. So he knows every particular chair and every particular person seated on every particular chair. But he also knows every particular thing in all of their particular and real relationships to one another. So he knows there are seven billion people on this planet. He knows all seven billion particular people in all of their actual relationships to one another. But not only that, he knows those seven billion people in all of their potential relationships to each other, whether relational or physical and spatial. Look at this room. God knows where you were seated, but he also knows all of the possible arrangements that there could be just in this room given the numbers of seats that are here. He knows all of that. But here's the fourth thing that Hodge points out. God also knows things, particular things, and how they would relate to other particular things which, which may or may not exist. He knows things that do not exist but that could exist in all of their actual whether in the mind or conceivably spatially, relationships to everything else that exists. What's an example? A unicorn, a horse with a horn. There's a narwhal, you have a whale with a horn. Why couldn't you have a horse with a horn? You see, God knows everything in that very, very big sense. But here's the other thing that theologians say. God's knowledge is undistracted. You know what that means? You all are parents, a lot of you are parents. You have children, you're in a conversation with a child. Another child comes into the room, says, mommy, daddy, and you have to stop and say to the child who has just come into the room, wait until I'm finished here. God does not have to do that. He is not distracted in that sense. His knowledge is comprehensive and personal. He knows you. And because he is God and because he knows you, he is able to keep you. Watch over you. Save 
you. He's your helper. You, the one who needs help. And he's also your hope. That's what this last verse encourages us to understand. The Lord will keep your going out and your coming in, meaning the days of your lives. He will keep your going out and your coming in from this time forth and forevermore. What is the psalmist saying? He's saying that this God is your helper, your keeper right now, right now in this moment. I don't know what you brought with you today. I don't know the sorrow, the joy. I don't know the loss, the gain. I don't know what you brought with you to this room this morning. It may feel that your feet are slipping. It may feel to you like you're being overwhelmed with evil. It may feel to you that God is taking a nap, has fallen asleep, is slumbering. He is not. In the midst of your distress, just as with the psalmist, he is your keeper. When our oldest daughter was 11 years old, she had to have a sinus surgery. She had a congenitally defective drainage port in her central sinus, and she kept getting colds and all kinds of stuff, infections and everything else, so they had to do the roto-rooter. They had to go up into her nose and open that thing up so all that stuff would drain out. The doctor came out of the surgery. He told us that everything had gone as planned, that Katie was in recovery, and that we were welcome to go in and sit with her. So my wife and I, my wife Barb and I, went in and sat with our 11-year-old daughter. And as she began to wake up, she was out of control. She had all this packing in her face and she started to pull at her face to try to get that stuff out of there. She, she tugged at the IV, she was thrashing about in bed. She felt like she was slipping. She was afraid. She didn't know what was happening. But she was being kept. Her daddy was there. Her mommy was there. Her nurses were there. Her doctor was there. She was being kept, though it didn't feel at all like she was. The Lord, the God of heaven and earth, is your keeper. And he will not let go of you now, in this moment, in the next moment, in the moments to come and forevermore. Did you hear that? See, there's a, there's a forevermore to the Bible. There's, a, there's a, an eternity to the Bible. God says that he'll be your keeper through the rest of the days, the, the comings and goings of this your life into that forever into that eternity. How do you know that? How do you know that God will keep his promise? The cross, 
the cross of Jesus Christ. Remember the word Lord, how that God, infinite, eternal, and all of the rest is a covenant-making and covenant-keeping God, a God who keeps his promises. He's made covenant with Abraham, with David, with Moses, and he kept his promises to them. There's another covenant that he made. The Father and the Son made a covenant in eternity. 11, Hebrews 11.20 refers to this, the blood of the everlasting covenant. When the Father and the Son covenanted together that the Son would come into the world, would live for a people and die for a people, bearing the wrath of God as he bore their sins that they might be free from the threat of judgment. And then he was raised to newness of life that they might be set free from bondage to death and in his his cross work, he crushed the devil so that the greatest of enemies would be destroyed by his death and resurrection. The Father and the Son covenanted together to do that for you before the foundation of the world. And what he promised in eternity is that he would rescue and deliver you out of the brokenness and the madness and the sadness and the sin and the death of this life and deliver you into a new heaven and a new earth where the troubles of this life will be gone forever. That's the forevermore. And God promises to keep you until you get to it and then in it for eternity. I want to close with this, this song, this lyric. It's a song about the new heaven and the new earth. I don't know that the composer knew that, but listen to the words and you'll agree with me. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, there's a land that I heard of once in a lullaby. Somewhere over the rainbow, way up high, the dreams that you dreamed of really do come true. Someday I'll wish upon a star and wake up where the clouds are far behind me, where trouble melts like lemon drops high above the chimney top. That's where you'll find me. New heaven, new earth, with your keeper forevermore. Thanks be to God. Let's pray. Jesus, thank you. Um, thank you that you are not a distant keeper, but you are a present keeper, one who has come into this world, walked among us, tasted our sadness, and then died to vanquish it all, being raised and then ascended and then enthroned as king for our salvation, for your glory. Merciful God, give us grace to believe this today, we ask in Jesus' name, amen.